0: The Hub is a community. Manuscript,
1: book, and print cultures,
2: stamping, problems. You are
3: listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space celebrating 10 years
2: created by Coral Tsiagar.
3: The Hub is about impact. About
1: the Hub is for everyone.
0: Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Trinity Long Room Hub online. My name is Eve Patton, and I am director of the Hub. Uh, for those of you who may be joining us for the first time, the Trinity Long Room Hub is Trinity's research institute for the arts and humanities. So we cover subjects ranging from history and literature to the creative arts, philosophy, religion, and language. The Hub wants to promote conversations in and across these disciplines and to support innovative approaches to new research, including research that addresses current societal issues. And this aspect contributes to our public humanities focus, which brings the perspective of the arts and humanities to a wide external audience. And this includes, of course, the Behind the Headlines series, which is sponsored and generously supported by the John Pollard Foundation. In this evening's Behind the Headlines, we're going to discuss the recent anti-government protests in Belarus and Poland. Now, These protests, as you know, have prompted media commentators to highlight the remarkable resilience of the protesters in the face of violence and oppression, but particularly the leading role that women have played in mobilizing and sustaining dissent. In Belarus, where demonstrations have been ongoing since the re-election of Alexander Lukashenko, the main opposition leader, Svetlana Tikhanovskaya, who, as you know, uh, spent several summers in Ireland as a Chernobyl child, is currently in exile. We're going to hear more on this from our expert panelists, particularly uh, on the role of women in the post-election protests in Belarus. But we're also going to be talking about the protests in Poland in response to the new abortion law. Uh, there are common patterns as well as many differences between the two movements. One of the things we'll be touching on is the sharp resurgence of Catholic Church values in Polish life and we'll be considering the extent to which this has made women and the LGBTQ community vulnerable in Poland's so-called democratic transition? And are we even still talking about democracy in this context? Or are we seeing across the wider landscape of Central and Eastern Europe, the emergence of what Anne Applebaum in her recent book, The Twilight of Democracy, has identified as a new form of soft dictatorship? Well, to hear more about this, let me introduce this evening's speakers to you. And they're joining us from Trinity College, uh, from Oxford and from Maynooth University. Dr. Balasha Poor is Associate Professor in European Studies at Trinity. Uh, he uh, is a historian of Central and Eastern Europe in the 20th century, uh, with a particular focus on the communist period. Balazsha's research interests include the study of propaganda and symbolic politics under communist rule and the Sovietization of Eastern Europe after the Second World War. And I'm also very pleased to say that Balaj is the director of the new Center for Resistance Studies in Trinity College, which you'll be hearing a lot more about in the coming year. Dr. Jacqueline Hayden is director of the Center for European Studies at Trinity and author of Polls Apart Solidarity and the New Poland and also of the collapse of communist power in Poland. She was awarded the Knight's Cross of the Order of Merit of the Republic of Poland in 2013 for her support for democratization. Uh, I'm also very pleased to welcome Dr Alexandra Herasimenka, who is a postdoctoral researcher at the Computational Propaganda Project at the Oxford Internet Institute. Uh, Alexander's work investigates how political groups and governments use social media to manipulate public opinion and he also studies how people organize protest movements in authoritarian countries. And I'm very pleased to welcome back Anieta Stepian, who is a university tutor in the Critical Skills Programme at Maynooth University. Anieta has taught Polish language and literature and the cultures of Central and Eastern Europe. At the universities of Glasgow, Surrey, and here at Trinity. Uh, her recent article, Women's Organisations and Anti Semitism The First Parliamentary Elections in Independent Poland, appeared this year in Nationalities papers. Now, before I hand over to Balaj, let me just remind you of our Behind the Headlines format. Each speaker is going to talk for around 10 minutes, and then we'll open up the floor to questions and answers. So I'd ask you to submit your questions in due course uh, through the Q&A function at the bottom of your screen. We'll come to these at the end. If you can, please say something about yourself. Make sure you put in your name uh, and where you're writing from. If you're following us on Facebook, you can, of course, also put questions in the comments section and we'll, we'll come to those if time allows. And we're also streaming on Irish Central. So, if you're on Irish Central, you can also use the Facebook function for questions. And of course, as always, if you're tweeting, please use the handle at TLRHub and the hashtag HubMatters. So, with those introductions over, let me welcome everyone again to Behind the Headlines and hand over, first of all, to Balaja Poh.
2: Thank you for the uh, introduction, Eve, and uh, good evening, uh, everyone. Um, my role here basically is to offer some introductory uh, comparative reflections, and then and then let my colleagues who are uh, the specialists really unpack the details uh, of these two protests uh, further. And I'm also representing here, uh, just as um, Eve said before, together with Jack, uh, uh, Hayden, actually a newly established uh, research center, the Center for uh, Resistance Studies, which is still very much under construction, uh, but we will start organizing activities in earnest from uh, early next year onwards. Uh, And in fact, one of the first themes that we are planning to explore in more detail is the theme of resistance uh, and gender. So today's uh, event seems like a very fitting occasion to draw uh, attention to the center and of course if you're interested in hearing more about the relationship of gen, uh, between gender and, and resistance or just uh, more about resistance and opposition in general then keep an eye on our activities in the future they will be promoted through the usual channels via the long room hub and of course uh, uh, via whatever channels we will establish in, in the coming weeks and months all right so uh, basically the idea to organize a, a panel that compares two recent protests, the protests in Poland and, and Belarus was uh, inspired by the prominent role of, of, of uh, that women have played and continue to play in the events um, as participants, but also as leaders and, and organizers. In the case of Belarus, uh, women's marches have uh, actually become a recurring feature, one could say the iconic um, uh, feature of the countrywide protests uh, that took place almost uh, on, a, on a weekly basis. Um, uh, since August. But at the same time, uh, the leaders and the, and the most prominent figures of the anti-government protests uh, are also women, including, of course, Svetlana Tikhanovskaya, the presidential candidate uh, challenging Lukashenko's rule. rule. Um, there's of course, Maria Kolesnikova, uh, the member of the coordinating committee who was abducted by the authorities and, and famously ripped up her own passport so that she could not be expelled from the country. And there's also also the iconic character of Nina uh, Bachinskaya, the 73-year-old um, uh, activist who became some, a symbol of, uh, of defiance really and, and courage in the face of um, a brutal police um, uh, repression and, uh, and violence. And there's of course the Nobel prize winner, Svetlana Alexievich, whose uh, home was um, famously protected and, and guarded by a number of uh, European Diplomats so that she could um, not be detained. Now, um, my colleagues will talk a lot more about Poland. Uh, of course, there is the Women's Strike Group and, and Martha Lampard, who, who are the most prominent uh, protagonists um, behind uh, the protest. But my colleagues will, will explore that uh, topic further. Now, the first uh, important point that I really like to make, and I think that needs to be very emphatically underlined at the very beginning uh, of this panel, is that um, these uh, The protest in Belarus and the protest in Poland are actually the largest demonstrations to have taken place in the two countries since the collapse of Soviet rule in Eastern Europe in 1989 and 1991. So this is actually quite an astonishing uh, fact and that needs to be um, uh, underlined at the very beginning. They both uh, resulted in the mass mobilization of women as well uh, for a political cause to an extent. that seems to be unparalleled um, in in the recent history of these two countries. So these are fairly exceptional um, uh, developments that certainly merit uh, our attention uh, here. And of course, there are a number of additional parallels that links uh, the two protests together uh, other than than scale and gender. And um, I'm just going to uh, highlight a few of those parallels, the ones that actually uh, struck me as the most important ones. Uh, first of all, both uh, protest movements uh, tend to be decentralized. Uh, there are uh, leading figures and symbols of resistance, of course, but there isn't really a single organization that oversees the, or- the, the organization um, um, uh, of the protest um, in, in the two countries. This um, uh, arguably has confused authorities um, uh, at the beginning, especially in Belarus, because it, because it was really difficult to uh, come up with a with an easy scapegoat who could be blamed for for the protest. And one could also argue that this confusion uh, could also um, this confusion was also resulted in um, in, in untargeted violence. Um, if you don't really know who to hit, then you just end up hitting everyone. So arguably, the decentralization and the confusion that it that it provoked also explains to a certain extent uh, the scale of violence um, uh, that. Um, that resulted. Um, another important feature of the two, or, or an important parallel of the two protests, is the temporal diffusion uh, of, of the different uh, events. Um, in Belarus, uh, women's protests have taken place on a regular basis, uh, mostly every week, um, and they sometimes acted as kind of prequels to larger mass demonstrations uh, the following day. Um, and interestingly enough, the, the temporal arrangements of these protests uh, were actually adopted quite deliberately, as far as I know, by the Polish protesters as well. Uh, and instead of demonstrating every day every day, or on a daily basis, uh, they also chose, ch- choose, chose to kind of uh, organize protest on a weekly basis, essentially trying to prevent early exhaustion uh, of the movement, so there are, these are not, so this is not just a parallel, but there is a direct relationship between uh, the temporal aspects um, uh, between the two protests. Um, now, both tra- protests also tend to rely primarily on non-violent techniques of, of protest, um, um, and they tend to use creative symbols um, to mobilize the people. In the early days of the Belarusian protests, for example, before the, the elections actually, Uh, cockroaches and and slippers were used as as symbols, uh, these were taken from a a children's story, Uh, or or pumpkins were uh, gifted to Lukashenko on on his birthday at the end of August, and pumpkin is kind of a symbol of rejection um, in that culture. And of course, in the case of Poland, you have the symbol of the the red uh, lightning bolt uh, there. Um, Another important parallel is uh, is related to space and the use of space. Um, both uh, protests tend to be spatially diffused uh, and again decentralized from a safe, spatial point of view. They do not uh, simply take place in the two capitals Warsaw and Minsk, but also in provincial centers and indeed in, in small towns. There was um, a big protest in, in Zakopane, for example, uh, in, in Poland, which is going this holiday, winter holiday, a small town in the south of Poland. Um, so it's not just the capitals, but provincial centers as well. But at the same time, uh, even in the capitals, there, there, there was a tendency to actually start organizing protests in the suburbs, uh, and indeed start organizing protests uh, at the same time, again, in order to confuse uh, the authorities and, and make it more difficult for them to disperse uh, the, the protests and, and the marches. And arguably, this is a technique that was borrowed uh, consciously from the protesting in Hong Kong, it is also quite decentralized um, uh, from a spatial point of view. And another important f- feature, uh, which has been emphasized by Eve as well, is the, is the, is, is the aspect of endurance. Uh, both protests um, demonstrated remarkable endurance, I and mean, they've been going on for months. The Polish protests have started in mid-October, and the Belarusian protests started well before the elections uh, in early August. They actually started in, in the late spring, in, in May mostly. Um, now, in both cases, the intensity of the protests are related to the fact that you know, uh, that these uh, mo- uh, movements are decentralized, uh, which of course minimizes demos- uh, demonstration fatigue. There's always someone who can step up uh, and organize another event. Um, it's also related to the fact that um, uh, the protests are spread out in time, which is a point that I've already mentioned. Um, although there were of course times when when, um, uh, there were daily protests. And the third point I would argue is police violence, and I would argue that police violence is also a factor that contributes to the endurance of these movements, because in both cases the authorities responded to the protests with violence, of course the scale is very different there, I'm going to come to that point as well, but but police violence and violence uh, in general backfired in the sense that it actually fueled resistance and contributed to The persistence of these movements and, of course, contributed to the mobilization of wider sections of the population to to join uh, uh, the protest. Now, there are, of course, notable differences between the two protests uh, as well. Most importantly, the political context. The political context, of course, is very different. Uh, Belarus is a post Soviet dictatorship uh, in crisis, whereas Poland um, arguably is a democracy in crisis. Uh, Of course, a democracy. Uh, that shows increasing authoritarian tendencies. And of course the response of the authorities is fundamentally or was, was fundamentally shaped by this uh, fairly major difference. And the other big difference is of course uh, related to the political agenda um, uh, between, behind the, the protest movements in the two countries. <clears throat> in Poland, uh, the protests uh, were provoked by a court ruling that directly affected uh, women's reproductive rights um, so initially, it was um, arguably a feminist cause that mobilised uh, women, uh, young women, and in, in, in particular to demonstrate. And of course, later they broadened their political agenda to include other demands, demands for uh, for reforms in healthcare, in education, uh, independent judiciary, and so on and so on. Now, in Belarus, the protests were not linked initially to a feminist uh, agenda. All social groups were represented um, uh, in the protest from the beginning, the young and the old, workers, minors, teachers, uh, academics, doctors, men and women, and so on and so on. And they demanded of course, broad political reforms and the removal of Lukashenko rather than the withdrawal of, uh, of specific uh, uh, policies. So the women's protest in Belarus emerged originally as a response to police brutality. Uh, and of course it later gained um, uh, additional connotations uh, and layers uh, of meaning, uh, meanings as well. And one could also talk about uh, uh, Svetlana Tikhanovskaya. Uh, one could argue that she was kind of an accidental re- leader in many ways that I- initially um, um, her hus- husband was supposed to run as a presidential uh, candidate, but he was uh, detained and arrested and is still in, in jail and then Uh, she stepped up um, um, uh, a few months before um, uh, the election. Um, And coming back to the the point of endurance, um, of course, which is a parallel between the two protests, but in uh, in the case of Belarus, uh, um, endurance is actually quite specifically related to the context uh, as well, uh, mostly because it is a dictatorship. It is a dictatorship that has lost the remnants of its legitimacy due due to widespread violence. Uh, but this is also the reason uh, why neither side, actually, in the Belarusian case uh, has anywhere to retreat to anymore, which, um, you know, absurdly enough, contributes to the persistence of of, uh, of both protests and, and police violence uh, as well. Lukashenko can't just simply resign and hand over power anymore because there is a good chance that he would be held responsible. Uh, and in a similar way, the protesters cannot just simply go back to normal or to the you know situation before the protests has started, um, because you know and pretending um, that nothing happened because uh, you know if the authorities are violent now, just imagine what would happen um, during a post-protest wave of retaliations, and of course people are uh, familiar um, uh, uh, by now with, with the repressive methods. Um, in, in those two cases. Um, now nobody knows what the future holds, and that's the last point I, I want to make. Uh, I mean, there is a cause for pessimism in relation to Belarus. Um, and, uh, and this is mostly related to the fact that the police and the armed forces have not switched sides yet, and that's usually a crucial factor in every resistance or protest movement. Um, and it is unlikely that they will switch sides now. So the regime unfortunately could still rely on on them and it does uh, heavily rely on on those institutions. However, um, I I do like to end up on a more optimistic note. Uh, There is of course the uh, possibility that the economic crisis that is brought about by COVID and of course the ongoing protest and uh, lack of stability in the case of Belarus could potentially uh, bring down these very institutions. I mean, um, it is unlikely that of course uh, uh, People in the police and the army in Belarus will continue to protect uh, Lukashenko if they are uh, stopped being paid. So there is, of course, some hope there for uh, the future. And I think I hold here because I think I've run out of time. Thank you for your attention.
3: Well, I'm taking time to to uh, to uh, begin now. I I wasn't sure how the segue was going to work there, but uh, thank you, Balish. Uh, for a really interesting overview of uh, both sets of uh, protests. So what I'm going to, to, to do and share with you this evening is really uh, the issue of why I'm hoping that the co-founder of the Polish Women's Strike and all the other women with her, uh, why Marta Lampart may actually be able to save Poland. And what I want to do is just, just talk a little bit about the following issue, what is the genesis of the assault on women's rights and the demonization of the uh, GBTQ people in Poland. What? what why has this happened? Um, it To anyone who was there in the early days it's a, a really appalling vista and so the argument I'm going to make is that the assault on these rights crystallizes um, a fault line between two conceptions of a very different Poland and so My argument is essentially that women's reproductive rights, issues around sex education um, uh, that was mentioned there by Balazs, that that all of these issues um, were embroiled in a battle to reframe Polish identity in post-communist Poland. And while the encroachment on liberal principles um, the rule of law, the separation of powers, the independence of the judiciary, all of these issues uh, and the assaults on them have been a shock to many who applauded uh, the triumph of the Polish uh, transition to democracy. My argument, and this is what I'm going to sort of unpack a little bit here now, is that the seeds of this uh, current attack, particularly on women and on LGBTQ rights and communities, that it arises uh, essentially out of Political errors of judgment on the part of um, particularly liberal elements of the solidarity intellectual elite who were responsible in the early stages of the transition for engineering the um, institutional architecture of the new Poland in the early 90s. So that's the argument I'm going to make. And I just want to say. In terms of background, I was a journalist for many years, my first big story was I was lucky enough to be in Gdansk in 1980 um, in the shipyards and met people like Lech Goenza Boen- and the various uh, Solidarity Distance, and I've stayed with it, it's, it's really become my life's work, and I have an archive of uh, a lot of interviews, nearly 70 uh, ongoing with all the various actors from Solidarity, from the Communist Party. So that's that's where I'm coming from. But um, the the question I'm not trying to look at today is, is you know how has Solidarity slid so far to the right, this regressive path, uh, which no longer offers shelter to secular or liberal tendencies. And I'm arguing that it can be traced to the fact that firstly, this is the first point I would make that. The collapse of communism in Poland didn't result from a revolution, but from a politically engineered compromise between an umbrella group, a very large umbrella group, and an alliance of soft-line, hard um, minded communists. That's the first thing. And this umbrella group didn't agree on much at all. In fact, the only thing they agreed on was opposition to communism. And I always remember interviewing Janusz Januszkiewicz um, in 1989 in June, and he was the spokesman for Solidarity. And he was just, uh, it was just after the landslide, uh, the electoral landslide, and he was in shock. And he just, and this is kind of an important point for my argument, he said, we're we're absolutely not ready. Solidarity is not ready, is not prepared to govern. And I got a great sense of him being overwhelmed. so that. The second point here is that this umbrella, the arguably the strongest spoke in the umbrella, in the solidarity umbrella, that's the Catholic church. They did have a template and they occupied, you know, a vital, a consequential space under the umbrella. Uh, and the church, can you can see it as the glue that kept very fractured opposition together. It was the interlocutor between the people, as it were. And the party, um, long before Solidarity emerged in 1980, and it would be the guarantor of the Round Table Deal after the um, uh, and then the resultant elections. So they were a guarantor, but unlike um, unlike all the others um, who shared this Solidarity umbrella, the Catholic hierarchy did have a template for Poland. And they envisaged uh, a very clear m- map of what they wanted, and a, cath- a Catholic uh, and a Catholicization of the Polish Constitution. And they had a template-, template for it. And you know, the current assault from law and justice uh, on women's rights, on one level, is no surprise. Um, and uh, an author called jo- Joanna Diana Catus has pointed out before the round table was over so very very early spring 1989 and before the collapse of communism later in the year the episcopate in poland had published a first draft of the unborn child protection bill in a catholic magazine uh, called family's confidence and as she points out uh, it called for an absolute ban on abortion Severe prison sentences to be imposed on the aborting woman, the doctor who performed the abortion, and any aider or better. It, in fact, was formally introduced into the sem by 76 deputies uh, later in the year after the coalition government was formed. So there's there, historically we know that the 90s was was uh, uh, really in Poland was very much taken up with these abortion debates, other issues of course as well. But what we see in, the, in this period. Um, is a sharp resurgence in Catholic church um, activity in, in political life and a, a really determined attempt to institutionalize an ethnic Catholic vision. Um, and that was in, in specifically in uh, the hope of not losing social control in this newly democratic state. Um, I interviewed um, Cardinal Glemp, the Polish private, uh, primate, I should say, in March 1992, and I went to the palace in um, Warsaw, and he, even before he would speak to me, he he, he said he refused to begin our interview until he made it really clear to me, he said, that he rejected what he said was the implicit reference in my list of questions, um, that the church was, quote, just another political group seeking to promote its version of social norms. So he completely rejected that, that that, that, that there was any issue of, of the church being a, another party to the debate about the fruit, future of Pol- Poland. And the church was belligerent at this time. And I think it was underestimated by the secular post- solidarity nascent parties. It was underestimated by academics. I remember talking to a sociologist, Edmund Wynuklopinski, who said, and this was back in 92, I think, and he said that the church was like a balloon um, at that time with no limits, but he said, you know, it's expanding everywhere. And he said, but like solidarity, which had to manage the famous self-limiting revolution, he said, the church will have to uh, li- to self-limit and they learned to temporize. That was such an error. Um, the optimistic expectation that the church would step back from pushing its claim for a confessional state underpinned the reasoning behind a huge tactical error, which arguably resulted in a fatal a fatal assault on um, women's rights, but also on secular values uh, more generally. Um, So abortion was turned into a political tool very, very early on, and politicians became stakeholders in that debate. And the position of any candidate running for office in the 90s, the position on abortion was essentially the single most important litmus test for differentiating political uh, parties. Uh, And so support for a ban became synonymous with patriotism, with nationalism, religious piety, etc. in this new Polish democracy and arguably I would say that the political left and also the liberal intellectual wing of solidarity in inheriting secular values from the communist uh, party and communist society that it, it put it under enormous Pressure um, and the, the 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 reforms that the liberals and the left w- w- uh, w- wanted to maintain and the secular society that they wanted to pr- promote that became problematic because of its association with the communist legacy. So the abortion debate came to stand as, as I would argue, as a symbol of an ideological conflict between two competing uh, nation building uh, project, projects. So another sort of leading into my major point, um, the round table compromise itself um, was the basis of of initially a very successful transition, but it because it became uh, involved in the politics of memory and it became um, a a, a disputed agreement, it left the space open for claims of treachery against solidarity negotiators. And it was the liberal wing the socially progressive, economically liberal wing of Solidarity, who heartily backed um, at that time the shock therapy, the Balcerowicz Plan, famously inspired by Jeffrey Sachs, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But it that left itself it, it was accused of not only, I suppose, engineering um, a poisonous deal with the communists, but of having sold Poland's assets, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But those who characterised the Round Table in that way as a seller. Sellout were able to characterise themselves as true Poles, and Piss under Jaroslav Kaczynski obviously had many different names uh, in the 90s, the party has morphed several times, he sees the high ground of, or they sees the high ground of, you know, the notion of true Polish identity, and that identity was of course essentially Catholic in its moral compass. So I think it's important to acknowledge that there were winners and losers out of that liberal wing of Solidarity's emphasis on economic transition and the people who saw themselves as the losers in that process of economic transition associated their loss with those liberals who also championed um, a secular and Europhile vision of post-communist Poland and Kuczynski has been the ultimate beneficiary of the, the so-called losers in terms of um, uh, the, the, the vote. So the, the piss brand of atavistic evocation of the true pole as us against uh, this them who are characterised as, you know, the, the, the enlightenment inspired liberals accused of supporting un-Polish values as it were, such as women's rights, human rights, LGBT rights, etc. That's how the debate has has, has generated this vicious uh, circle. And uh, uh, reading um, Teresa Kavallik, um she talks of a reluctance to clash with the church um, as being the historic compromise of the post-1989 order, a compromise that she says sacrificed women's rights. And I think that that's had a huge impact. And so implicating the church as the Liberals did in order to focus on state building and the economic uh, transition, I think this was the big error. And um, former dissident intellectual uh, and then an MP, Yannick Latinsky, from uh, the Liberal Wing of Solidarity, I interviewed him in 1993 and he acknowledged the problem of the strategy of placating the church in order to protect the post-communist economic transition and the reform package. He said, um, we should have clearly criticized some of the tendencies, he meant, you know, the the extreme Catholic tendencies, but we were afraid of attacks from right-wing elements within the church. We tried to have relations with them because we wanted them to leave the rest of uh, the reforms alone, and he said it was a mistake. So, Um, Concluding, you know, I would say that from the vantage point of 2020, you know, where you've got so many municipalities signed up to controversial anti-LGBTQ charters, you've got the attempt at, at the almost complete banning of abortion. I would argue that the failure of Solidarity's liberal wing to defend human rights, women's rights, secular values, in the early days of the transition, left the door wide open for those who wanted to rebrand Solidarity in the mold of what a scholar called Zubrzycki calls an ideologically constructed dominant uh, ethno-Catholic narrative of Polish uh, history. And that's, to me, that's a tragedy. Um, So finally, I would say that in, in privileging the economic deal, which of course was terribly important, over commitments to social and human rights and the protection of transition losers. Um, The liberal wing of solidarity uh, did, and I'll use a football parlance here, they they dropped the ball. And my personal uh, secular prayer is that Marta Lampert and the Polish women's strike will invigorate um, Polish society and Polish women and Good people, uh, and that they will pick up that ball and run hard uh, against this tragic uh, situation that has uh, developed since 2011. Thanks very much for listening. Thank you.
4: Okay, yeah. uh, um, Hi, everyone. Yeah, I'll continue, um, and I continue with the topic of, with a focus on Belarus. And I studied Belarus protests for many years, and uh, indeed it was one of the largest protests, uh, uh, as Balash noted, one of the largest protests ever happened in history of this country, indeed, largest Mm -hmm. perhaps. And what happened next was obviously something that people did not expect, and this what people did not expect was a level of repression they faced. So I I would suggest that, what women in uh, in Belarusian protests did was very unusual because they, they managed to recognize the weakness uh, of these repressive practices of the state and um, use it as a strategic strategic um, asset in their in their fight with the uh, with the Belarusian regime. So how did it happen? Uh, just just to give you a, a bit of a sort of um, Feeling. I, I'll share with you uh, these um, uh, pictures from from Belarus. This is the first one of the first days of the Belarus protests in in early August in Minsk. And this is a chain of women. you the only women in this uh, in this chain. Called this specific type of mobilization, specific type of protest. called uh, chains of solidarity. So this change of solidarity started happening right after the huge repre- uh, ways of repression that happened uh, right after the presidential election day. So on the presidential election day, a large protest erupted across the country. Some research suggests that at least 80 towns been involved. It could be that any, any location in Belarus that is called town, that might be called, might be defined as city or town, been involved in the protest, there were people who had been part of this protest movement. It was really a nationwide protest movement, with more than 10% of the adults joined the protest movement in the first days. They joined because they were unsatisfied with political situation, uh, falsification of the uh, pre- election, but also with economic uh, situation, as well as the very weird COVID response response to the COVID crisis by the government. And people who went on streets, men and women, young and old children and uh, pensioners, they've been beaten, more than 7,000 people, 7,000 people get repressed in those few days, first early days. By this time, we know that more than 32,000 people have been detained. It, which means it's, it, 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 it's a huge number, really. And it also means that there is not enough space in, in prisons, in jails these days in Belarus. But uh, what was, uh, and, and you see, this is the Belarus story is a story of repression. It's a story of an authoritarian regime. That's what makes it uh, different from most of them. Uh, the other protests uh, we, we know very well about. And it's one of the harshest authoritarian protests ever. Uh, regimes and, uh, and consequently one of the most repressed anti-authoritarian protests ever. So, women on this picture—they just uh, went on streets, following those days of violence, first few days of violence—and they stood in the in the chains. And that's when regime didn't act; they didn't know how to act, and that's what um, what was the first role. The, the, the role of um, opposing the police violence when police, in fact, refused to repress women. So mostly repression was directed at men and males. There are many reasons why it's traditionally that in Belarus, um, it's mostly males who participate in politics, who are leading opposition and also government. And for that reason, maybe, especially in the government, spe- specifically President Lukashenko, who runs the country for 26 years, one of the lonest um, uh, serving, uh, supposedly elected head of state in the world, he uh, doesn't really believe that women uh, can be competitor uh, in politics. That's what he openly says. Um, he, th- 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 that partly explains why. During, uh, during the presidential campaign, only one, essentially one important and significant uh, opposition contender remained on the ballot. And it was a woman, all the rest were repressed, put in jail or had to escape the country once they announced their candidacy. But one woman remained and her name was already mentioned here, Svetlana Tichanolskaya. So she remained um, in, uh, on the ballot papers. And after that, uh, she remained a symbolic leader of the movement. Uh, just like those women and white. And once those these women went on streets in, in Minsk, it changed the dynamic completely. All people who were just absolutely shocked by the level of violence in the first days when protests erupted, when people were killed by the police, people uh, received life life-changing injuries. What happened is they just forgot their fears and followed women, and also went on streets. It was amazing to see. And that time went on, protests developed, movement went on, and in one or two months we saw pictures like that. This is the picture uh, recently included by New York Times in the in the list of uh, sort of best pictures of this year, and this is picture from another protest in Minsk two months later. Again some women in white, some not, but we see this time they've been surrounded and that's when regime turned to them as well. So very often it were only women who would lead the process because and or protect males. In fact there are some males behind as you see they're protecting them yeah But what's happening is uh, two or three months in the protest regime, they change the tactic and they start also repressing women as well. And it's also changed the dynamic of the uh, protesters a bit as well. And it's what we see from the pictures, uh, from, the, from the photos, from the uh, footage. But what's been happening inside the movement is also quite interesting. So you see that uh, just like Svetlana Tikhanovskaya, like uh, Kolesnikova, Maria Kolesnikova, who, off the, uh, who just destroyed her passport not to leave the country, and many other uh, prominent women. Uh, who've been leading protests um, uh, publicly. Uh, there were many rank file activists like these women standing and surrounded by police before being taken to jail. So all, uh, many of those women have been taken to jail after this picture was taken in Minsk. Uh, but there were another layer to this protest, another layer to this movement. And this uh, layer is not really visible through social media, through uh, photo coverage. Uh, they're hidden leaders of the movement. So while symbolic leaders inspired people, that's that's very often uh, kind of uh, important function in the process. Ha- having a charismatic leader who would inspire people, having uh, a leader who would direct direct movement uh, through their words, through their um, example, maybe. Um, there were many other leaders b- who've been mm, organizing people on an everyday basis. And many of them were also women. But uh, maybe, uh, interestingly, very interestingly, uh, most of those hidden hidden leaders of the process, people who mobilized protests through social media, uh, who coordinated protests online, um, were increasingly uh, males, in fact. It's quite interesting development. So here, stop sharing. And just uh, to conclude. Uh, in terms of dynamic of the movement, quite unusually for a similar type of anti authoritarian protest, a protest in the region, large nationwide protest, uh, I would say males and women's sweep sides. And women became prominent nationwide symbolic leaders. And males became uh, coordinators and hidden coordinators behind the stage coordinators of the movement. And it led to very interesting development in the dynamic. Um, just as a famous essay by Geoffrey Freeman, uh, who was called uh, tyranny of suggests with time, any process movement in its development becomes more and more structured, even, even if it rejects any structures. If it, if it wants to completely remain horizontal, uh, if it doesn't want to see and have any kind of hard um, authoritarian leaders within its organization, it still receives those type of leaders. Not symbolic, not just kind of uh, charismatic leaders, but very functional leaders. And those functional leaders increasingly uh, become people who mostly now located abroad of Belarus, they had to escape the repression and most of them are males in fact. So they merged through all the networks of uh, friendship and ties that existed before movement emerged and they kind of take over uh, paid positions, uh, functioning positions uh, within movement. Uh, and in combination with those hidden leaders that I mentioned, who most act through social media, they start in dominating uh, this uh, nationwide movement at the moment. So there's interesting dynamic happening, and I'm, I would be very happy to discuss it further if any questions. Uh, if any questions, because my time, I think, is is finished, is expired. Thank you.
1: I hope I'm not mute anymore. Okay, so um, thank you, Alexander, for um, for your talk. Um, I find these some of these photos really upsetting. I have been following the protest on Twitter, and uh, before I start talking on women's strike in Poland, I just want to say that women in Poland are definitely inspired by uh, by the the courage of women in Belarus. Uh, they, are, they are following closely the developments and as Balasz, Balasz was mentioning, the, 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 the idea to organize the protest weekly rather than daily is, it came from Belarus actually. So there's, there's lots of kind of uh, connections there. Um, I will focus, as I said, on women's strike in Poland which originated in 2016 with the black protest which focused mainly on reproductive rights The protest was significant in showing that the increasingly authoritarian government isn't untouchable. The proposed bill to further restrict abortion was shelved. The protest, however, gave rise to the largest anti-governmental resistance movement in Poland since the fall of communism, as Balacz mentioned earlier. Today, I want to focus on the radical shift in the nature of the women's strike in 2020 which is no longer only about reproductive rights, but has become the fight for civic rights and freedom, with abortion, however, becoming symbol of this fight. What has really captured the attention of the media and commentators is the protest visual aspect that testifies to the determination, creativity, anger, but also humor of the protesters. So the sign of the red lightning bolt uh, seen on social media profiles of every person and institution that uh, that supported the the, um, the protest is a warning. This is a war. We will not give up without a fight. Uh, the second symbol, the coat hanger is another common symbol uh, which, which talks about violation of women's bodies through the back door unsafe abortions that the inhumane Constitutional, constitutional tribunal rule forces women into. To signal the sinister character of the proposed policies, some women show up in the protest dressed as handmaids, characters from Margaret Atwood's dystopian novel, where women are captured, raped, and forced to bear children in the name of a religious order. In Poland, such a fundamentalist religious order is being implemented with the help of organization called Ordo Juris, which is the increasingly powerful, ultra conservative Christian group of lawyers trying to influence European legislation. But I want to focus on few expressions used in the Polish protest, which give us a better understanding of what what this revolution really is about, and to illustrate the cultural and in my view, also a feminist revolution happening in Poland right now. And I also must uh, apologize, or actually, not apologize, warn the audience that uh, the slogans I will be translating into English uh, are swear words, some of them. In the first days of the the protest in October 2020, a TikTok video went viral of women's strike in Szczecinek, a town of 40,000 inhabitants. It showed a group of teenage girls holding signs, my body, my choice, when they were confronted by a priest. The girls soon became furious and began chanting and screaming at the priest, wypierdalaj. Wypierdalaj, which translates roughly as get the fuck out or fuck off, became one of the defining slogans of the protest used by the regular protesters but also public figures, politicians in Poland and abroad. In the first instance, it is directed at the Polish ruling elite, uh, backed, uh, backed by the Catholic church, which the public views as archaic, incompetent and deaf to the voice of the nation. So for example, according to the recent poll, 70% of the, over 70% of the population is against restricting the abortion law, uh, but the government doesn't seem to care or listen. As an extremely rude word, it is a very extremely uh, rude word, uh, Dalaj captures the radical and uncompromising nature of the ongoing protest, which demands, demands an immediate change of the political system, while also conveying anger and the impatience. Time is up, now the negotiations are over, you have to listen to us. So I think, uh, especially Jacqueline will uh, really appreciate this. Uh, so this is the swear word, but it kind of imitates the solidarity, as it the idea of solidarity as it was at the inception. So when it was fighting for women's rights, Vipir Dalaj, its popularity and outreach demonstrates exactly how the political protest meets feminist protest against social and political marginalization of women. On the one hand and the glorification of the traditional role of women as mother and wives on the other. We see this in the increasing stigmatization of single single and childless women, restricting women's access to contraception, followed by a number of recent pronatal policies and financial incentives encouraging women to have more children and more quickly, And now the law prohibiting women to have abortions in cases of serious fetal abnormalities, which of course often poses risk to the mother's health. At the same time, the government offers minimal to no support for families who raise children with disabilities. The slogan also goes against cultural expectations that women and girls should be polite, obedient and not swear women and girls, but also grannies as the protest became truly intergenerational cannot be polite and meek when women's rights are being violated. So in that sense, that, that profanity that they use has an empowering role and demonstrates also a rejection of patriarchal gender expectations. Many commentators noted the incredible mobilization of young people, mainly girls, in this protest, which is another big change since 2016. I should also mention a huge interest in the women's strike on social media popular with Generation Z, so Instagram and TikTok, which until now never touched political subjects. Strikes were organized in small towns, places with less than 2,000 people, I think as Balash mentioned, that that are strongholds of the ruling party. And of course we can see that pandemic is playing a role with this uh, as young people want to be together uh, during that time when they were isolated for a long time. But the video that I discussed earlier clearly shows that the Catholic church and the ruling party have lost their authority with young people who also, what is very important, are not afraid to, con- to, confront, uh, to confront them. And another popular on social media, um, and not only symbol uh, that you might have seen is the symbol of eight aesthetics, five plus three, which stands for fuck peace. So the ruling party. Young people and people in Poland in general are fed up with the church's position of moral authority sanctioned by the government dictating what is an acceptable way of living for young men and women today, while stigmatizing those who do not fit in those narrowly defined norms. This is at the same time as more and more of church pedophilia scandals are coming into light. So for example, last year's documentary about the victims of priest sexual abuse which is called Don't Tell Anyone, has 24 million views on YouTube. You can actually watch it in Octo- with subtitles. In October, 2020, Google Poland noted a record number of searches about apostasy and there is apostasy challenge going as well in Poland at the moment. The alliance of the church and the government negates the achievements of modernity, globalization and progress in terms of civic rights Poland has achieved in the last decades, and this is just unacceptable for younger generations. The final element of the protest I want to mention is its intersectionality, which is also one of the defining features of the third wave of feminism. Intersectionality can be described as the recognition of multiple and overlapping points of oppression. And in Poland, this uh, other group, uh, that other oppressed group are LGBT plus people uh, that Jacqueline mentioned earlier. It is not rare to see rainbow flags in the protest, in the women's protest next to banners, but kobietami, fags with women, or women and LGBT together for equality. The events that contributed to this were, um, for example, Andrzej Duda's uh, LGBT scare rhetoric in the presidential election back in May, followed by various municipalities introducing LGBT ideology free zones, and then also the protests in support of LGBT activists who were arrested over the summer months uh, and these protests you know, were in, in, the, in support of these activists, but also against rising homophobia in Poland and increased, uh, increased police brutality. So to end, it is safe to say that the radical and uncompromising and angry, but, but I would say not aggressive uh, character of the women's strike draws to some extent from that, LGBT revolution in Poland, which, as we can see, is in its budding state. However, the government's ever new and emboldened forms of oppression of its citizens leave no choice but to match, match it by new and emboldened forms of resistance. Thank you.
0: Well, thank you very much, Anieta, and, and many thanks to all the speakers for, uh, for treating uh, complex and very different subjects with, with such clarity and uh, and insight um, and uh, for those of you listening you'll notice uh, that uh, with many links being put into the chat function so you can follow up and on, uh, on a lot of these points in in uh, in uh, material that, that the speakers have added in this panel but I know we've got lots of questions coming in so let me move straight to those um, and uh, I'm going to ask first uh, a question that's come in from Jerry Malumbi, And Jerry, I know that you're joining us from Derbyshire in the United Kingdom. Um, But uh, you were interested to know about uh, whether previous models of women's resistance and women's protest have been influential in the case of of Belarus uh, and and probably Poland as well. And you're specifically referencing the, uh, the women who were involved in the peace movement in Northern Ireland, and, of course, who went on to win the Nobel Peace Prize, Mairead Corrigan and Betty Williams. Uh, is there a sense that, that that protest or that movement formed a model? I suppose I would add, are other movements, have other movements been cited, such as the All Women's Greenham Common protests uh, of the, the 1980s? Um, I know, Anieta, I might come back to you on this, because you began your contribution by referencing the fact that one country is looking at another, that Poland is looking to what's been happening in Belarus uh, as a model and and for templates of, of, uh, I suppose, best practice in terms of how resistance can work, but are there historical models too that are being engaged?
1: Um, I would say I, I, I don't think people in Poland are so um, aware of the, the Northern Irish uh, women uh, and, and, and the peace protest. Uh, well, maybe peace pro- uh, sorry, the, uh, yeah, the, the, the peace protest mentioned. But I would say that the, the Republic of Ireland is definitely a point of reference that uh, I see Uh, constantly, uh, you know, uh, uh, on the discussion forums and so on. So, you know, I I follow um, this uh, kind of feminist uh, group uh, women to women, uh, let's say, translated like that. And, you know, Ireland is constantly being uh, discussed there. So Savita's case, you know, uh, especially with this protest, I would say because I think Savita's case is where Poland is heading to. Poland is with this new law. Uh, this is the scenario that we can expect. Actually, uh, you know, uh, so the 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 constitutional tribunal. Um, uh, banning of abortion in case of uh, fetal abnormalities has not been published, but women are already affected by this unpublished law. The hospitals are in the limbo; they don't know what they should do, so they refuse women uh, abortion. And I think the case of Savita and you know uh, repealing the aids uh, are are you know women in Poland are looking up into Ireland. Interestingly, Kaczyński, the leader of the Peace Party puts Ireland as the, the example of the fallen country. Look what can happen when the liberals take over. This is where, we are, where our country is heading if we let LGBT and, and women have their rights.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I might bring you, Jackie, bring you in on that question as well, but specifically in relation to uh, your comments on, on the role of the Catholic Church, the key role of the Catholic Church in pushing this transition or this retrogression, if you like, again, is there a sense that Ireland is providing uh, a template or a model or a point of reference here in in any kind of self-conscious way?
3: Well, you know, I was very struck when uh, Anietta was talking about Kaczynski. I mean, um, our our former teacher, Leo Varadkar, was um, uh, specifically mentioned um, by the current prime minister of Poland recently and attacked. And I, I absolutely agree with what Anetta is saying that the that the idea that Ireland has fallen, that we have um, a, a effectively um, abandoned um, our core values, um, it, for me, what it emphasises is that it, this battle over identity, you know, and that it is. I mean, it, it, it's basically it's it, it's a battle to 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 move back out of modernity and um, the, how it is characterized by piss and and by um, the ideologues in it is it, it's it's a very crude, um, it's a very crude assault on the kinds of values that we now take for granted and i would i would I, i'd really be interested in what Agnetta would say about this but i'm sure that it is particularly annoying for the piss people that so many uh, polish young people came here and um, in the 90s and and in the 2000s and you know have done well many of them have stayed some have gone back but that in other words the seepage of these uh, values is, 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 is going back to Poland in a way that's not acceptable at all um, so uh, but I, I, I just really want to say it, it, it is to me it's like this gargantuan battle um, trying to, to literally go back to a past that in modern society is is gone and is over.
0: Thanks Jackie and I will go back to Anieta on that but I just wanted to add a question of my own in that regard because you began by talking about solidarity movement and uh, and the, the revolution uh, uh, of that period as as the beginning of the timeline that has led to what's now going on in 2020. Mm. Why that timeline? Why is it now that uh, the Catholic Church is able to exert its influence in this way and, and to bring about, to push for this kind of legislative uh, restriction? Well, well is it taking so long, I suppose I'm asking?
3: Well, I mean, the first thing is, is that you've got to remember that throughout the 90s, there was... Um, Fairly much revolving door governments, and um, uh, and Ineta will speak to this as well. That 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 you know you had um, a series of of governments. So so firstly um and there was even a post-communist uh president uh uh there was a post-communist government um in in the mid 90s and and so uh this is not a sort of uh there's no continuum here there was there was a lot the battle over the constitution was massive the actual constitution um the, the actual constitution of the republic was not finalized there was a little constitution and then the final one i think was in 1997 you've um you've, you the splintering of um the post solidarity parties also played a role in um making it difficult for anyone to really shove through an agenda but i mean um i i think we can safely say that um once um piss um and and remember, Kaczynski was a and, and all of the um members of his party were in multiple other iterations of uh, that particular Catholic um, um type of party. That once they um were able to essentially uh, form a government more or less on their own, give or take, um and have come back for a second time. Now they mean business, and that business is in, uh, you know, in 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 absolutely uh, confirming a a Catholic state uh, for a, a so-called Catholic people. Um, so I mean, I think it, it, if you want to look to so why it didn't happen earlier, it is it, it is simply that the forces, um, the, it, the the electoral politics didn't make it possible for them to do it.
0: Thanks, Anjette. Did you want to come back in? On that
1: point, no, not really. I just want to say that I think the young people have spoken in Poland. Mm. They, uh, you know, the the, the churches in Pol- the church in Poland um, as an institution has been dominated by men of certain age, mm. and I think, uh, you know, the it this doesn't this doesn't the young people can they cannot relate to that, and on top of that, we have. Uh, something very similar happening to what happened in Ireland, uh, you know, the, the the pedophilia scandals, I mean, you know, you knew about pedophilia scandals for the past, you know, 10 years, uh, newspapers were writing about that, but but really something like an eruption happened with, there were two documentaries that were published and I don't know if it was because it was, you know, I I don't know why this time, but it caught uh, with people and there's more and more scandals, uh, more stories that we learn about, but also showing the victims perspective. I think this was a big factor showing actually a documentary which which followed the victims. Uh, People can empathize, people can be, you know, really sympathetic of that. And I think that really shifted the society. There was also a film, Uh, a feature film, which, which, which also talked about pedophilia. So, uh, yeah, I think, I think the, the, you know, yes, the, the, it is very obvious for everyone that, that the the church and the government that, you know, that they are in alliance together. And I think the church also represents tradition. So it's a very big argument for the ruling party to say that when you attack the church, you attack the tradition and so on and so on. So I think it's very convenient, but uh, the, the people have spoken against it.
0: Indeed, and it'd be interesting to, to talk more on the generational backdrop to, uh, to the protests as well. But let me come to a, another question that's come in from Georgi Hova. Uh, Giorgi, good to have you with us. Uh, it's well known that Polish protesters use the internet, especially social media, as a means of mobilization. Is it the case with Belarus too? Uh, and to what extent are the protests there enabled by the use of social media. I might go to Alexandra with that question first. Obviously, this is where we, you know, we'd be interested in your expertise. Um, and, and just to talk about what a couple of people have mentioned, obviously, the effects of social media, Twitter, but as like, Agneta, you also pointed out, this is uh, uh, protest movements in Poland being mobilized by TikTok and on Instagram. So again, we have this generational question coming in. And Alexandra, you also, I think, uh, alerted us to the very theatrical nature of some of the protests and the way in which that theater has been picked up and circulated by television news reports, by uh, uh, iconic, now iconic photographs. That, that visual sense of the protests is very important to the way the movement has been mobilized as well. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit to Georgi's question about social media, but perhaps elaborate on, Particular style of, of uh, the protests in Belarus.
4: Well, yeah, indeed, uh, protesters in Belarus, as well as in many many countries uh, right now around the globe, where people protesting, they use social media actively. Though maybe the the combination of uh, platforms they use is a bit different from Poland or um, uh, other countries that uh, that we can define as democracies uh, specifically because social media as well as internet is often get censored and uh, uh, protesters experienced long periods of internet shutdown when there is just basically either most of the social media websites and many, many foreign websites are not available or it's just when mobile coverage during the days of protest are switched off. So it means that it also uh, people need to find platforms that uh, are easy to use and are also very well uh, sort of linked, connected uh, to the Internet. So you don't really need heavy traffic to just read uh, some text message from this platform. And and this platform uh, became um, uh, that kind of platform of choice for Belarusian activists became something called Telegram, which, which reminds WhatsApp. In a way, it's also messenger, but also it's, it has uh, affordances of YouTube and Twitter. So it's, it's about broadcasting from one to many, and also it's about uh, text rather than, it, uh, it, it's also very much about visuals, but interestingly, this specific platform that helped to build infrastructure of the movement, it's mostly text-based, most of the information uh, around this movement appeared in text form. So it's not TikTok or Instagram at all. It's far away from it, interestingly. Uh, and it somehow very appeared to be something very suitable for the movement, though indeed it was very much visual. It was very much it's about uh, visual. It's, in, in fact, uh, the most contentious element of the protest is, is the flag uh, maybe some of you might recognize and remember uh, pictures from the protest. Many people went on them with white, red, white flags. And this is one of the key elements. Having Now having a right, red, white flag um, in your window, just in your window, not just walking on the streets with it, but having it in your window considered to be an, an offense uh, and uh, can be prosecuted. And people put in, in jail these days for just having, displaying this flag. Many, there are many other interesting symbols to this movement, and um, well, yeah, and it's, it's also really much about, I think, expressing solidarity, sort of expressing uh, people's attitude, and and it's about symbolism of, of the movement. So, uh, in fact, this flag is national flag that's been uh, state flag until Lukashenko came to power. So, people just perhaps symbol, it, it, uh, uh, this is something that helped to unite people. This is just one of the things I can think about immediately.
0: Well, thank you, and, and it was useful to see in the photograph, the first photograph that you showed, of course, women wearing white and holding white flowers. You know, that that, that symbolic element comes through very strongly. Uh, I want to go to a question that's come in from Steve Wilmer from Trinity, uh, who says uh, to, it's directed to you, Balaj, but I think anyone can answer. Uh, and uh, not surprising that this question has come up. Can you also comment on the importance of Russia in providing financial and security support for the Belarusian government? Uh, Balaj, where is Russia in this? Uh, reading between the lines of the protests?
2: That's, that's a very big question. <laughs> uh, I can, I can uh, try to sum this up in uh, in a few sentences, and maybe Alexandra could, uh, could add some uh, additional details. Um, of course, it's well known that uh, Belarus has had uh, close connections with Russia. Um, um, in fact, their, their closest partner was, was uh, uh, or had been Russia for some time until very recently when those, um, you know, uh, there were pressures on, on Lukashenko to make those connections even closer. And to, uh, he tried to avoid some sort of a Ukraine scenario from, uh, from happening, so there was this uneasy. Kind of love and hate relationship between Lukashenko and and Putin in the last couple of years because of that, but since the when since the protests uh, happened, there was also an incident with um, uh, with pr- private paramilitaries uh, from Russia who uh, were deported uh, uh, back um, uh, to to Russia as well, and at some stage, um, um, you know, they uh, there was the the, the possibility of, of, of russia interfe- intervening, but then when uh, Lukashenko realized that um, he is pretty much isolated uh, in Europe uh, and of course in his own country as well, he started using this this rhetoric and, and making suggestions that Russia could potentially uh, intervene and and send security forces uh, to help out in this situation and indeed, there was a joint uh, military exercise um, uh, with Russia and Belarus uh, next, to, uh, next to Brest. Obviously, the significance is, is, is quite obvious there in the middle of a protest, a dictatorship uh, in a crisis, and there is a joint military exercise with one of the you know, great powers in the world. So, the sy- symbolic significance of that was, of course, quite obvious. And then uh, Pu- Putin and Lukashenko also met um, in Sochi, um, and uh, uh, during which uh, there were all sorts of discussions about various things, but the most important outcome of that discussion was a one point billion loan uh, from Russia to Belarus. Essentially, of course, to solidify or consolidate the situation um, of, of Lukashenko over there. Essentially, this is money to uh, quite literally to buy time for, for Lukashenko to consolidate his position. Um, of course, from Russia's point of view, direct intervention would be quite problematic um, and um, I think Putin made that uh, comment as well, that this is a uh, situation that the Belarusian people should resolve through dialogue, of course. There's a lovely cynical comment there, uh, but Russia would be quite reluctant to intervene in this situation um, uh, because I mean, uh, of, the, of the example of Ukraine there. And uh, plus, it would be very expensive to actually consolidate and integrate um, uh, Bielorussia into Russia if, if that uh, were to happen uh, in the future.
0: Thanks, Balazha. and presumably that that backdoor financial support uh, will continue as needed um, behind very the scenes. Um, uh, we've got a couple of questions in that I want to take together because I think they're very interesting, and maybe uh, we'll, we'll, we'll come back to um, to Agnetha and and Jackie on these. But uh, it's specifically about the the women who are involved in the protests in both countries. Uh, one question is from Sanjay Avad and Sanjay joins us from India, uh, with a question about uh, women in education, and the question I understand to be asking, are these women in higher education? Are they women who uh, are protesting, having been through the experience of higher education? And I know that women in third level education, uh, certainly in Poland, uh, is a very high number, even in proportion to men. So what kind of women uh, are you seeing on the front line of the protests? Uh, And also, we have a a comment in, um, or a question in, from um, Syve Byrne. Very good to have you with us, Syve. Syve is an undergraduate in Trinity and is asking about the women protesters and how they're portrayed in the media, as she says, profane and unwomanly. And I know, of course, Sonietta, you touched on the demonization of childless women, single women, as well, in addition to this. how, how does this representation side says affect the endurance of the protests, uh, and does it more often distract from the intentions of the protest or fuel the resistance further? So, how do the the uh, representations of the women involved play into and perhaps affect the protests themselves? So, two linked questions there about, I suppose, what kind of women we're seeing on the front lines. And I might come to you first on that.
1: Yeah. Um... Uh, I would say, um, you know, like with solidarity movement, you could see uh, you know, the the thing about solidarity movement was that people joined from every class, you know, uh, from every background, intellectuals, workers, and so on. And I think this is what we see uh, in that protest. Uh, as I said, you know, the the uh, it's intergenerational. So you have young girls, teenage girls in the protest. I, I heard, um, uh, some 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 debate, intellectual debate uh, I was listening to that, and one of the women said her 13-year-old daughter was going to the protest with really strong, powerful slogans. You know, you have a, a, a leading feminists, so intellectual feminists uh, joining the protest. Uh, you know, you have uh, regular women, mothers, women who you know have children. So this is really. I would say intersectional and intergenerational. We now have Polish grannies, a group of grannies who, you know, uh, emerged as as a thing, as a group, as a phenomenon, and so on. Uh, but I, I I think about the you know uh, the, the profanities that uh, it, this is a really really interesting aspect uh, to answer to answer the question about women's reactions. So. I, I've read a very interesting statistics about how the women's protest was por- portrayed in media. And I don't mean just social media, but actually newspapers, you know, radio, what kind of context it was. It was actually some uh, me- media monitoring report. And it's very interesting. So the report was from, uh, from uh, uh, October until November, uh, kind of uh, roughly three weeks. There were 41% of articles about women's protests were in a positive light, okay? Uh, uh, 41% were in a positive light, 46% were kind of neutral, and 13%, which were mainly the media, which are the uh, uh, ruling party controlled media were speaking negatively about the protest. And the major thing, the first thing they focused on was were the profanities, the swearing, you know, women shouldn't be swearing, you know. Uh, So it is really symptomatic. And I think because those particular governmental media picked on that, that's like a fuel on that fire, you know, on that protest. So I think to answer that question, no, that doesn't discourage women, that actually encourages women more. And that's why I also see the parallels between the women's protest in Poland and the third wave of feminism. But I also see the fourth wave here. You know the echoes of Me Too. The, the this out you know the outrage character of that. It's we can see the definitely you know uh, the, the the discussion about sexual harassment. This is also fueled by by Me Too. But I I see that you know that uh, you know reclaiming uh, the the. I actually have been uh, abused on Twitter as well. I was called the C word, and I think what we see is that women are reclaiming these words. They are called "whores" by these national nationalist groups, neo-fascist groups. They are called all kinds of names, and women are reclaiming this, and th- that empowers them instead of saying, you know, no, we have to go back to to being good girls, and don't question anything, don't, uh, don't ask any questions. So I hope that that answers the question.
0: Really interesting, and, and it's such a great question from side Jackie, you
3: yes, want- Yes, it's an excellent uh, question. Do you want to add to that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, while Agnetha was talking, I just started flicking through my phone there, and I was trying to remember the date. 8th of June, 2019, I got back uh, to Warsaw from a trip to the country, and it was in the middle of a massive um, celebration of LGBTQ. And I stood, I suppose, for about an hour and a half with my friend, uh, Christina Latinska, um, looking at the crowds passing by. And if you ask what the profile of those uh, people was, it was. It was urban, it was rural, it was old, it was young, it was literally intersectional, cross-sectional, you know, and it was joyful. And there was banners from, you know, mothers and granddads um, and grandfathers, um, we love our gay son, or, you know, obviously all in in, in all kinds of... um, uh, beautiful banners and, and 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 floats and things, and I remember starting to to look around me, and I I, I hope this doesn't come out the wrong way, but I started to see very very um, repressed looking males of a certain age looking on with nothing but hate in their eyes, and. There weren't many of them by comparison with the absolute thousands. I think it was, and, and yet it was. Was it eighty thousand or something? It was something massive in Warsaw that day, and I was. I never felt as lucky in my life to see with my own two eyes that that was so cross sectional across Polish society. But still, you know, the old reporter in me just looking to these, and they were men and one or two very sad looking people with multiple crucifixes and all kinds of stuff hanging out at them and um, who came up to me and my friend and said we should be ashamed of ourselves as women of a, a certain age but they were so much in the minority they were just they were they were a statistical kind of blip when you looked at at, at the gay pride floats and the um, and it wasn't just the lgbtq thing i mean it was a, it was a celebration in my view of the secular so cross totally the colours of all hues is what I would say is the answer to to the the very good question from our colleague in India.
0: Well thank you, thank you uh, Jackie and uh, we're we're coming to the end unfortunately, I know there are a lot more questions but uh, we could maybe finish on a a question uh, that might go to anyone in the panel Um, but it's about what uh, the diaspora from both countries is doing or can do to either support the resistance movements or to to help them gain resilience and and sustain them. Uh, Is it easy to contact, to communicate from outside the country? Is it easy to speak to those who are involved in in the resistance Uh, if if you're a member of the Polish or the Belarusian diaspora, uh,
4: those communities?
0: Alex, I might come to you. Alexander, if I could come to you on that one, perhaps.
4: Sure, yeah. Just briefly, I think, indeed, diaspora and this particular protest in Belarus is a very, is very crucial question. And it shows one important one important um, observation about Belarusian case. Because in contrast to Poland, in contrast to, uh, say, other protests that we observe in recent, recent years, the case of Belarus is perhaps also a bit of that case when it's not just about say democracy, about specific policy, I, many people suggest that it's also about kind of process of nation building. For that reason maybe uh, historians of nationalism might uh, might be curious to to explore uh, that current case of, of a Belarusian protest and it's also reflected in, in how diaspora re- reacted uh, to the protest when uh, people well I observe myself I'm just currently located in London, um, people around me uh, and uh, people all around all around the world who, who were coming from Belarus previously, before before August, before summer this year, they were not really much interested in say other people around them from Belarus. They really didn't even think about that they are coming from Belarus. In fact, but something really happens, something changed this couple, this uh, really uh, recent month, and they really changed their attitude towards Belarus. They became interested in Belarus. They became interested in the heritage of Belarus and became interested in, uh, in uniting around around um, the, the part of the identity that belongs to the country they're coming from. Um, and it, it resulted in quite large wave of uh, solidarity and support, the nation infrastructure in particular that would help victims, for instance, of the regime inside the country, that would help people to relocate, those people who really needed, for instance, medical help to escape the country or escape possible jail persecution and those people who will get abroad everywhere from China to Canada will happen a lot in this regard. It's quite an interesting process indeed. Thank
0: you. Thank you very much, Alexander. And I'm really sorry to people who uh, didn't uh, have their questions asked, but I think we've had a very rich and and a brilliantly well-informed discussion tonight. Uh, And I'm, I'm so glad we did a behind the headlines on this topic Uh, because I've learned a lot, but I think all of us are going to be continuing to watch uh, this situation unfold in Belarus and of course the situation unfold and develop in Poland. So I want to close by thanking uh, our four speakers, uh, Anieta, Jackie, uh, Alexander and Balaj. many thanks for your uh, time and and valuable contributions this evening and for answering the questions uh, so, so brilliantly. I'd also like to thank again the John Pollard Foundation uh, for sponsoring the uh, Behind the Headlines series. Our team at the Long Room Hub, particularly uh, Francesca and Aoife, as always, for their hard work. And many thanks to all of you for joining us and for engaging with this topic uh, and putting in such interesting questions. Uh, this is our last Behind the Headlines uh, for 2020, in fact. But please join us again in the new year uh, because we'll be. Uh, kicking off our public programme again with the Out of the Ashes series lecture. That'll be on the 25th of January. And if you've been following the Out of the Ashes lectures, you'll know this is just a superb series. Uh, This lecture is going to be from uh, Dr. Corinne Wegener, who's the director of the Smithsonian Cultural Rescue Initiative. Keep an eye on the Trinity Longroom Hub website for information on that, and for all the other events that you may be interested in that are coming up in the new year. But for now, once again, thank you to the speakers. Thank you all of you for joining us. And uh, I wish you all warmest wishes for the winter season. Thanks again and good night.
3: The Hub is a community. Manuscript,
1: book, and print cultures stamping provenance towards the history to of the Taimouli Library.
3: As well as being haired. The Hub is it's a space
2: contemplating Ireland through the communities created by Coral T. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for
4: everyone. <laughs> the rise of feminist
3: Here to the next 10 years.